So, book of Proverbs. We're going to continue on in our series in that. If if you don't know, Bob was supposed to be here this morning. He is sick, and so I'm here. And we're gonna we are going to roll with this. Um, we've been going through a series on the book of Proverbs, practicing Proverbs in ordinary life, and the idea is just that we would take particular themes that are in the verses that are in the book of Proverbs uh, and then preach on some of them. We're not going to be able to hit all of them. Last week, I know that Bob hit speech. This week, excuse me, this week we're going to be approaching sex. So, trigger warning. That's the topic. Um, and we're going to see what Proverbs has to say about that to us this morning. So let's, let's pray. All right. Father, we just, we just say thank you for your word. We're just so thankful that your word tells us all that we need to know. We thank you that your scriptures are sufficient. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, God, that you would help give me words, and that you would speak, and that you would address us, flawed human beings. God, that you would reveal to us places in our hearts that we may not want revealed, but that are good for us. God, where we need to confess sin, God, I pray that we would. God, where we need to walk in more forgiveness and grace, we ask that you would do that too. God, help our outlook to be your outlook about us, about this world, about our own bodies. So just help us today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as usual, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit in the book of Proverbs. And the first thing that I thought was important to say just from the outset when we deal with a topic like this is that God is pro-body. So just get that statement in your, in your head. Sometimes as evangelicals and as Christians in the media and different things like that, we can focus so much on the nose. What are Christians against? Oh, they're negative about sex. Oh, they, they are prudes and all that kind of thing. That is, that is not true. Now, some are, but a biblical view of Christianity, a biblical view of what God wants us to know is that he is pro-body. God made them. God created you in his image. Male and female, he created you. Could that be me? Switch that. All right. Pause. One of those days, right? Hello? All right. We're there. Try to clip this on, see what happens.
All right. God is pro-body. God created all of us in his image. And that is very important to understand. I think that, that God makes that clear in a few different ways. One from the very outset in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2 in him making us complementary pairs, male and female. We also see it clear from the fact that God came in the flesh as a man, 100% man all the way through. That the man Christ Jesus died and then God rose him from the dead, which is affirming of his good creation. And in the new heavens and the new earth, all of us will have new bodies. We won't just be disembodied spirits floating around up there somewhere. But that we will be in the new heavens and the new earth in completely new bodies. And so those, I think, are are three kind of key theological ways that we know that the body is good. I'm just going to read that. Genesis 1, not the whole thing, but the first chapter of Genesis, we see in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So the goodness of men and women created in his image. In Genesis 2, it gets a little bit more specific about the man and the woman. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the goodness of creation. No shame. It's hard to imagine. Living completely, never experiencing shame. And that's how it was. The God made it all good. And that here they are in the garden, or just Adam in the garden, and something is not good. Needs a helper. And so God makes one for him. And the helper is not meant to be a denigrating term. The helper is used at times in the Bible for God. So that can be abused as if helper is less than. That is not what the Bible is saying at all about the relationships of man and woman. 
Helper is used for God. Helper is also used for military matters in the Old Testament. And so this, this, this helper isn't a subjugated term. And man formed from the dust of the earth, and then God builds woman. It's kind of an interesting parallel between dust and then taking out of man and this word in verse 22 of chapter 20, yeah, verse 22 of chapter 2, the rib that the Lord God had taken from man he made, if you look at the ESV at the bottom, footnote 5, built. This idea of construction, of fashion, of beauty, almost like an architectural feat. And so then the man erupts in poetry, saying, this at last is bone of my bones. You'll see that offset in verse 23 to give this feeling of poetry to man's response to seeing his bride. So we have the beauty of woman, which of course is good. And so God says that a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, intimate with one another. And that, of course, means the totality, body, sexuality, yes, and soul and spirit, oneness. Then just that beautiful phrase, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God made men and women sexual beings. They are gendered beings, they are man and woman, and they are sexual beings. And God called them as complementary pairs to fit as one, both physically, relationally, the whole ballgame that God intended that to be his perfect unity, to actually reflect him and his relationship with his people and his church, which we see in the book of Ephesians. But, chapter 3, and we see the serpent come in, and God or excuse me, the serpent misinterpreting what God has said and tempting them. We see them falling into sin. We see shame. We we see the realization of nakedness. And all of a sudden, the whole world inside gets flawed. And sexuality itself gets completely flawed. What God gave as a gift with sex between a man and a woman and only in that context and in the context of a covenant and of marriage becomes corrupt and all forms of deviant behaviors arise. Whether it is heterosexual deviant behaviors together, apart from the contexts of marriage, in homosexual behavior, which the Bible calls sinful, whether it's all other forms, you, you, you go through the Bible and the Bible is not shy. You come across things like bestiality. You come across things like incest. You come across polygamy, which actually, when you look at through the Old Testament, never goes well. And so we find that we are broken people sexually in all matters. 
And every single one of us is broken and flawed in that way. And so when we come to the book of Proverbs, I wanted to kind of start there to show us the original intent and then what has happened in light of the fall. Because as we go through Proverbs, we'll find a lot of negative things about sexuality. What I mean by negative is a lot of warnings. Not all, because there's some very erotic pointers to the positive relationships of sex in marriage in Proverbs. But there's also a lot of warnings. And we saw that especially in our first few sermons, where those first nine chapters of Proverbs have the adulterous woman as one way of life. And we have the lady of wisdom as another way of life. So we have a metaphorical picture of two pathways that we can choose. And we have the words of a father to a son, which is what makes up Proverbs. As if a dad is sitting down his boy and saying, there's two ways to go here. You're going to choose wisdom or you're going to choose folly. Are you going to choose foolishness? And one of the things that comes up a lot is sexuality and sex. So again, the Bible isn't shy. In Proverbs, we're going to look at verse, or we're going to look at chapter. If I can find it, I think it's five. We have him in chapter 5, meaning the father, continue this pattern between him and the son. And in 5 he says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So we have the first thing that the father saying to him is, Be attentive. Listen to me. Incline your ear. Again, those, those word pictures. Attentiveness. Incline your ear. Come close. Listen, make sure that your lips guard knowledge. And then he contrasts it with another person's lips. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. If you look at the Hebrew again, footnote for number one there, if you're in the ESV, strange, the strange woman drips honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So warning his son, don't go down that path. And that path is going to be seductive and attractive. And she is going to be seductive and attractive. You will want to go after her, but don't because it will end in death. She's a double-edged sword. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. She is a wandering ways, meaning wandering from the truth of what God has revealed. Verse 7, And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Again, he's saying, lock in on my words, not just the image of that woman. Lock in on what I'm saying. Believe that it's true. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan 
when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So this picture of here's what's going to happen if you go down this road. If you go down the wrong road of sexuality, if you follow the, the adulterer, if you follow the prostitute, if you go after fornication, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to give your honor to others. You're going to give your years to the merciless. It's going to take your strength. Your labor is going to go to the house of a foreigner. And again, that in the context of God's people as opposed to the people that are not God's people, not strictly a not a racial kind of thing, but a racial thing in the context of the God of Israel versus the false gods of the world. If you go after and you chase the world's way, the world's woman apart from God, then you will go down to death. And at the end, you have this picture of that. There's this guy crying out in the assembled congregation as if he kind of comes back to the group and realize I've made a waste of my life. I've spent all my strength on women and chased after what my heart desired. And this is what I get. I hated discipline. I hated reproof. I didn't listen. I was wrong. And so think about the end of what adultery would do to your marriage, of what adultery would do to your house, to your legacy, to your lineage. It is death. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. And here it turns positive. Flowing water from your own well. Again, notice the word pictures here. He's making this very attractive. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. So again, the positive. Son, when you're married, drink from your own cistern. Be intoxicated with your wife. And this is sensual language. Lovely dear, graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Again, God is not ashamed of the body, saying in the context of marriage, enjoy the body. That is okay. That is free reign. She is a spring for you. Be delighted with her and her alone. Intoxication. Again, just these metaphors that he's choosing. Go ahead. Get, get drunk on her. Don't get drunk on the other woman. Oh, you'll get drunk on her. She will allure you, but she will take you into death, which, of course, is where lust eventually leads. It can be utterly seductive and attractive, and it binds you like cords. 
which we find in verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. This picture as bound with ropes. What a picture for the bondage of sexual sin. He tells him that every man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. God is watching. He's saying, listen to my words. Listen to what I'm saying. And God is watching you. He ponders all of your paths. You know, in our day and age, and I mentioned it before in previous sermon on Sermon on the Mount on the issue of lust, especially with um, the rampant nature of pornography in our culture and the Internet, you find many bound in the cords of that particular private sin. And how easy, way easier than it used to be. You don't have to run down the street to the liquor store to buy the magazine. You have it in your pocket through your smartphone. Anytime, anywhere, good day, bad day, there it is. A harem available to you. And it's a warning for us. Do not go down that road. It is attractive. It's going to offer honey. Don't go down there. It will destroy you. You know, it's such a, a, a heart issue, such a um, desire issue. Sometimes we think of the word desire as if it has kind of a, it's automatically going to be like a lustful or a sinful connotation, even the word desire, as if it's wrong. God gave us desires of all kinds, and he gave us sexual desires that is good. Again, that's the way that he made us. It is good. But there is a whole way that it can be twisted and it is wrong. And if we let our hearts and desires lead us without God leading us, then we will go down the path that is wrong and leads to bondage and destruction. There's this picture of heart and desire. And if you look at Proverbs 23, I love this picture of the father going after the heart. Proverbs 23, 26 to 28. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Again, he's calling attention to his eyes, calling attention to his heart. Give your heart to me. Look at, give your eyes to me. Observe my life. And then, all of a sudden, from, from eyes and heart to four, four, a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. As if there's one way you can give your heart to me as the wise father on the right path. You can give your eyes to me and to what I have said, what God has revealed. Or you can give your heart, you can give your eyes to the adulteress, to the prostitute. But it's a pit. A narrow well. It's interesting when you think about that in the context of, sure, it's going to offer some water. But it's narrow. It's not satisfying. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Again, that context of deception. 
which, of course, in the context of marriage, to commit adultery outside of marriage is deception, lying, not the truth. Again, this emphasis on heart and desire, Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3. No, it's not right. I think it's 31. 31, verses 2 and 3, or 1, 2, and 3. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? That's a, good, that's, a, that's a great way to start from a mom, right? What are you doing? What are you doing again, son of my womb? You came from me. What are you doing? Son of my vows. I made vows before God, before most likely husband. And the first thing out of her mouth, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. So here's a king. Getting words from his mom. Don't give your strength to women. It destroy well, it will destroy you, and it will destroy you as a king. We can insert presidents, rulers. You think about the way in which sex can distort ruling righteously in a land. We obviously see that regardless of party in our culture. Don't give your strength. It can destroy you as a king, as a ruler. So again, it's, Proverbs is kind of narrowing this, not just in just men in general. Son, listen to me. Don't go down this road, but saying, hey, if you're a king, if you're a ruler, if you have a responsibility of administration and rulership, don't go that way. And then he goes on to, to drink which is a sermon that comes later. <laughs> but this idea of giving your strength, your, your vigor, your sexual vigor, don't give it to women. And the hallmark of who we think that that is in the Old Testament, Proverbs, um, and the book of Proverbs, most of all written by and also compiled by Solomon. There's debate over that, but Point is, we know that some of this is Solomon's words, and what was Solomon's problem? He didn't follow that advice as a ruler, and it destroyed his kingdom, it destroyed his land. And any time where, where sex becomes the ultimate value in society, it will not only destroy us personally, it can destroy us broadly as a society. First Kings chapter 11. Let's look at that for a second. Again, this emphasis on our heart. That's what God wants us here. He doesn't just want us to hear law on this. He wants our hearts, our affections. And listen to the way that First Kings talks about Solomon's life and what happened to his heart. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Pause for a second there. So this emphasis on foreign and strange that keeps coming up in Proverbs, that again is you have the God and the God of Israel and the people of God. 
And then you have this idea of that they're to be separate from the world, from the other nations, because all these other nations are idolatrous, so they do not worship the God of Israel. And so this isn't just saying, hey, hey, they're foreigners, they're not like us. It's that, it's that they are worshiping false gods, and you are a part of the people of God, and you are ruling the people of God. And King Solomon gave his heart, loved other foreign women. We'll see what happens. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. So God says to his people, don't enter marriage with them because you're going to follow a different God. So what's an implication for us? We want to think about who we marry. And we want to marry somebody who is following God. It doesn't always work that way. It's a different issue. But the first issue is, as Christians, as people trying to raise up our children, to encourage them with their hearts to not give it away to the wrong person. Solomon clung to those in love. Again, just this picture. Solomon clung to them. Don't give your heart to other women, other nations. And what does Solomon do? He clings. He gives his heart away. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Again, his affections, his desires going to them. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And interesting there, we know the story of David. There was moments when his heart was turned away. Bathsheba, murder, all the chaos that ensued in his kingdom from that. But just this issue over and over again on, on his heart. His heart went away. And it's not just about going away to other women, it's that it went away from God. That's the issue here. But Solomon's heart was not like his, the heart of David, his father, who, of course, God calls elsewhere a man after his heart, despite his own adulteries. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And then it goes on. And again, we have the Proverbs of Solomon. And his heart went elsewhere. What a warning to us to guard our hearts, to guard our affections, mostly for God and his word and his ways, and not for what our culture tells us, or what our body in the moment might be telling us.
with David. Again, we love how, or I love, how you hear this, how you see this picture of David as he did right. And again, you go, what are you talking about? Didn't you read your Bible? You're writing the Bible. Didn't you read it? Whoever is writing First Kings. <laughs> like We saw what happened there. And again, we see, no, God, God is a God of forgiveness. Nobody, nobody is sexually pure 100% all the way. And what an encouragement that is for us in the gospel. That is not this issue of, well, if you just follow that way, well, you're done. Sorry, buddy. Ball game's over. You're going to be destroyed. Your life is wasted. No, we see a picture of the gospel in the life of David in another king who failed and had some severe consequences. But yet he's called as if he followed God wholly. His whole heart was given to God. What a great encouragement that can be to us. Sometimes, and even we can, we can raise, I know in being in youth group years ago, sometimes the emphasis can fall so much on just all about sexual purity. And, well, it's not all about that. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a part of life. But when we just make that central and it turns into kind of a law, this great standard, and then you break it, then you just feel crushed. Well, forget the whole thing. I'm doomed. I'm done. It's like, no, that's not where the emphasis is supposed to be. Of course, we're going to blow it in different ways. And that God's good news and his grace is that he calls us to repent. You blew it, get back up, repent. Turn to God. He is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. It isn't over in your life if you fail that way. And if you're young and you're all trying to live up to this particular standard, which God calls us to live up to, but then you fail because you're going to fail, turn to God. Get up and keep going. Because what can happen is you can swim in, in the shame of the impurity. And, and what does God want to do? God wants to wash us from the shame. In the text that was read this morning, there's that, there's that picture of, of sexual immorality and these ways in which they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It talks about men who practice homosexuality. It talks about that as a sin in there. Not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It talks about sexual immorality, I believe, in general, which again is any kind of sexual sin outside of the context of marriage, homosexual, heterosexual, whatever, that whole lump, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's bad news. Because we're all toast. But the good news, what does God do at, at the end of that verse? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. I love that emphasis on wash. You have this picture in the Old Testament about uncleanness. And in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, where people always want to pull out the Leviticus verses. And they're there. And they're there for a reason. But this picture of what sexual immorality is, and the emphasis upon being unclean. You have to go outside the camp, you're outside the society. But what God does in the gospel by giving us Christ is he says, when you trust me, you get washed of all that uncleanliness that you've done, all that Levitical law breaking that you've done. You can be washed and made whole, sanctified and justified in Christ. And so our hope in all of this is that God has broken in to the world to rescue sinners that are deviant and flawed in their sexuality across the board of whatever kind. And that God came to save them, to wash them, to sanctify them, to justify them, to say, you are now a part of my people. All that stuff that you were involved in, 
You trust me and it is forgiven and you are inside of my people and I've washed you. Your shame can go. Because when we listen to shame, when we get stuck in shame, we get discouraged, we get depressed and that just makes it worse. (laughs) Just makes it worse. And God wants to take verses like that to encourage our hearts and to say, you're sexually flawed, you're sexually broken. Yes, you've blown it. You're probably going to go blow it again in the future. But your hope is going to be here. Your hope is going to be in the good news of Jesus Christ and in him making us a people that are pure, that were impure but are justified and pronounced pure before the sight of God. And so that's where the power can come to fight off temptation. The power can come to hold fast in our hearts to that truth to cling to that good news. And while this other stuff can be so alluring, so seductive, and the opinions of our culture just to follow our hearts and follow our desires and be who we want to be and make our own identities, God is saying that that whole worldview is a lie. And that God is saying that, that His is the truth. If you want an identity, find it in, in Him and in what He says and in all of it. Yes, the no's that he says to protect you for your good and the pros and the yeses that he says for your good, which do include your desires in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. So I think what I want to do to kind of close this out is just to listen to both the warnings that we've heard today and the promise, the good news that we've heard today and hold them close to your heart. Hold fast to both of those things. And if you have, if you have failed in in some way, if there's something that that um, that seems to be haunting you, tell somebody. Confess it. If it's private problems with the pornography, confess it. Especially if you're married. If it's actual that that you've been involved with somebody else who is not your spouse, confess it. And that's where the healing and that's where the removal of shame is going to happen. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be easy. But that's where the freedom is going to come. In 1 John, it talks a lot about light and how when we live in darkness, some of our living in darkness isn't just what we're doing, but it's what we're hiding and we're not confessing. And that God wants us to be a people of the light. And we should be a church in a place where we can be broken and flawed and blow it, maybe in some of these particular areas, and be a place where we can say, God, I need help. God's grace is wide open. And may we be a people that are also extending grace to the sexually broken as all of us, all of us are. So I encourage you to, to confess, to heed the warning that we've heard and to be encouraged in the good news of grace. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. Such was me. 
But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of Christ, which is why in communion we can take it in, in hope. And we can do the confessing now before you and God. Your sin isn't just primarily against a person if it's in this particular way or in any way. It is against God. What did David say when he sinned? Against you, you only have I sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah and the murder. And then you go down just the whole history of what happened afterward. He sinned against a lot of people, but he sinned against God. And so what we can do in communion is we can say, this promise is for me as a sinner. And so, God, I, I confess my sins to you. I confess my sexual sin to you. And you can make me whole. It's your body and your blood that make me whole and make me pure. And then we can take it in that good news. So let's, let's do that together.